Welcome to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we are podcasting once again from Flatbed Bread Pizza here in South Windsor, Connecticut. And we're really glad that uh, you have taken the time to uh, listen to our show. And uh, today, uh, it's Tom's day. But before we get to Tom and his subject, let's introduce ourselves. Uh, I am uh, C.R. Wiley, and I am the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. I'm the senior pastor. We have other staff. Uh, but anyway, that's who I am. And uh, Tom, one, well, Glenn, why don't we go to you, and then we'll let Tom be last because he's got the subject, <laughs> of, the subject of the day. Okay, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great. And Tom Price, I'm a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, well, as I let folks know, yeah. your day is today, Tom. And it you're, is. And, you, and you're going to be addressing something that, uh, you know, is, you know, the reason you're doing it is because the person you want to talk about just recently died. That's right. Uh, Roger, Sir Roger Scruton. Right, right. Sorry, I don't want to. Right. To get that wrong, Sir Roger Scruton, um, for those uh, who are aware of that and who know who he is, um, he was an English writer, philosopher. Uh, his, his emphasis was uh, aesthetics or, you know, th what we think about um, in terms of beauty. Um, but he was, he was notoriously a conservative. Yeah, notoriously, that's uh, yeah. right. That's a, <laughs> notorious right, is a right. good word. Right. Uh, conservative philosopher, uh, a rare breed. Mm -hmm. um, he was the real deal, controversial. Um, mm -hmm. He knew what it meant to be um, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yeah, uh, he yeah. was excluded from a lot of circles and uh, um, oftentimes marginalized, but uh, only by the weaker, not by the, right. the stronger. And he, he was an impressive intellect um, and a, a, I think a gift to a lot of us in this time as we try to make sense of it. And he, and he, and he was involved with, if I remember correctly, kind of an underground... Uh, school uh, behind the Iron Curtain. That's right. Yeah, he, in, in Prague. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. his um, I'm trying to think of where he was, uh, um, where he grew up. Um, but I do know he grew up. I think he ended up in growing up in Manchester, England, eventually. And his dad was a teacher, Mama Homemaker, I believe. Okay. And his dad was kind of a strict guy, and he said, uh, my dad um, basically undermined everything I found valuable. <laughs> um, and so he, he, he loved the gentlemanly class. That was something that fascinated him from childhood, that kind of Victorian hmm. gentlemanly class. His father hated it. And so his father, well, Manchester. That's right, yeah. yeah you know, and uh, so you're talking about probably working class family. Working class folks. And yeah, he grew up very down to earth, um, I think, but his dad teaching in that environment. And he said, you know, eventually, even though they were kind of nominally Christian, they were humanists um, right, in, right. In, in particular. And he, you know, it's what they call a kind of religion-free zone. I mean, that's what he, mm -hmm. he grew up around. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, he, it, he eventually started to be fascinated why, with, you know, um, philosophy in particular. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he was given an um, opportunity at Cambridge University to study natural science, and he did go there for a while. Well, anyway, he got, got involved in some, as they say in England, controversy. Um, <laughs> I love the controversy. Mispronounced things. Schedule. There was a controversy at Cambridge University. <laughs> Laboratory. In, but this is funny. <laughs> for some reason, in the theater department in which he was involved, um, the stage was on fire, and a female came to put it out. Was who was half clad? <laughs> she wow. was not dressed fully. So he was uh, he was kicked out of Cambridge. He ended up getting into Oxford, but eventually he ends up doing his PhD at the University of Cambridge. I think Peter House. Um, but when he was in France, and don't ask me how he ended up in France, I don't know enough about his history. But he was there during the riots, um, and I think it was 68. Well, in, in, whenever you're right. in France, there's a riot. Isn't that like part of the Horse national strike. culture? Yeah. Horse strike. <laughs> That's right. Well, 1960, May 1968 riots, um, he said he became a conservative. And here, here is his... Well, you know, that, that's, that's a great thing. Because like, if you really want to become a conservative, yeah. just live in a place like Paris when there's a riot. Right. Well, this is, do you want to hear what his thing was? He, he watched people pull up cobblestone and beautiful architecture and throw bricks at great stained glass. And do you know what his, his response was? How can this unruly mob of self-indulgent middle-class hooligans 
Yeah, that's right. And he, he of course, is growing up from that right, world. Right, he's, right. But he's basically, how can, how can people that come from where I come yeah, yeah. from um, think they're morally superior to where they desecrate these things that have, right. have been here right, for right. ages? And, 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 you know, and so anyway, he does graduate, I think, 1971, um, a PhD from Cambridge in Art and the Imagination, a study in the philosophy of mind. And he did it under, wow. partially under Elizabeth Anscombe. Oh, wow. Wow, so, interesting. Yeah, yeah, he, did, he didn't yeah. Get, get over easy on that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, oh, well, another fascinating story about uh, him is he was, he, although he is very much uh, for animal rights and all these things conser true conservatives are for, he <laughs> loved fox hunting. Yeah, yeah. In fact, mm -hmm. I remember an interview with him conducted by, I can't remember <laughs> where, where it was, maybe at the BBC, and they were just... They just couldn't get beyond that. <laughs> they were just all about the fox hunting thing. Yeah, they, and they, they couldn't there, hear they him were... about anything else. Yeah, <laughs> and it's such a weird thing. Because, I mean, you have fox and hound in every English town. It's right. the strangest part. I mean, it's a whole thing. The hound is chasing the fox, and you hunt it. <laughs> it's okay to drink to it, but it's not good to do it. Well, anyway, he ends up. This is great. He ends up meeting. Her name is uh, Sophie Jeffries. She is an architect historian. He meets her at a fox hunt club, and they end up getting married. <laughs> well, that's, there you go, that's guys. That's the only thing that can woman. happen. And this is interesting. I didn't know this, but I was just reading some stuff about him today. And he and he and her were such that in England they started to pass laws that that made it illegal to fox hunt. So they ended up buying an 18th century home in Virginia that allowed so they the could parameters fox. so they could fox hunt. And they kind of ran it out a lot. They were going to move there eventually, and then they, kind of, they ended up turn, right, turning right. it down. But I think they visited there. He also taught at Boston University, another okay. thing I didn't know. Huh. So, yeah, he has a lot of ties to here. But anyway, why is Scruton significant? Well, I, I can't give you a full sum because I, I don't know all of that. I know how I stumbled on him. I, I was, and it's impossible to summarize the guy because he did so much in so many right. different areas, and all of it is worth reading. Worth reading. He's, right. he, he's a man of letters in the full sense, and uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, 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 someone who centers it all in a full Christian vision, and um, and 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 yet someone who embraces the whole Western vision spiritually, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. just merely you know a sort of epiphenomena of Christianity, but part and parcel to what Christianity right. is up to and doing. And um, and and he's not apologetic about that. I mean, I think this mm -hmm. is this is what he sees. Is and so he he was never shaken because it was spiritual for him. Um, but uh, uh, you know, he I know him from writing some uh, some from uh, interesting philosophy texts, introductory that students can get into. But he wrote a lot on um, desire, human sexuality, aesthetics, music, wine, cigars. He got. He he was actually bound up. He was tied somehow to growing tobacco, and uh, got into a whole lot of heat because he he was talking about those parameters between a, a sort of oppressive government censoring people from being free to do these things versus mm -hmm. the enjoyment of them. So he he's right, just right. a really fascinating right, right. Um, figure. Um, if if you have not read uh, Scruton and you're in the audience, read Scruton. Yeah. Even if you agree with him, I don't care. You know, read. We all have to read things we don't like. But read him. He, he's fascinating, interesting, and he has a lot to say about a lot of things. Right, right. Um, but one of the things I'm going to talk about and springboard off of is that he actually has a uh, documentary that was done by BBC. I think it's on, uh, it's, it's out there. You can find it. It's called um, Why Beauty Matters. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know what? That should be like a mandatory, <clears throat> mandatory for every evangelical pastor before he's allowed to build it. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. You know, we have so much crap. We do. <laughs> yeah, we do. We you know, do. And, and we can lay all the, we can lay it all at the feet of the mega church, church growth movement. And interestingly, if well, you could... If I'm not sure it all goes there. Well, good portion of it. <laughs> but I, my, my, I, would, I will make this argument based on this, this little, this little documentary. If you substitute theology for beauty, it would be the utmost critique of contemporary evangelicalism, mm. and not just contemporary. Maybe for, for mm -hmm. a long strand of right. it, right. Um, I think. I think what he's after the transcendental, the the notion of God is that which um, the, the glory of God, if you will. Right. Well, I want to get into your comment a little bit there, Glenn, if you don't mind. Yeah. Now, so you say, and I agree, 
I was being a little bit, I, hyperbole is the word. Sure. <laughs> but we're, you, no, we're you, known for that. Here. <laughs> <laughs> but could you sort of unpack a little bit what you were, what you were getting at when you say not everything? Well, I think that the megachurch is actually sort of the second wave. Gotcha. Because even earlier you see this tendency toward multi-purpose rooms yeah. and things like that where you set up the, the folding chairs or maybe the plastic right. chairs, whatever, right. for the service, but then you take it down so you can use it for something else. Right. There, there's a utilitarian ethic that comes into architecture generally mm. that is then adopted by evangelical churches mm. with the megachurch model being just the most extreme example of it, but right. it's built on roots that go back well before it. You know, what comes to my mind when you when you describe it that way is those, you know, those sports stadiums that mm -hmm. were supposed to do everything and did nothing well. So like, you know, Bush Stadium, the Bush Stadium that I would attend as a kid, you know, I go to as a kid to watch Cardinals baseball and <laughs> Cardinals football was not conducive to either baseball or football. So it was like a bad stadium for everything, but right. we used it for everything. Yeah. And now we're, we're, we've kind of, at least in sports, have, have like recovered the idea that a, like a, a venue ought to like be designed for the thing that's going on in it. Yeah. And, and to some extent, you actually have to blame a bit of this on the reformed world. Oh, yeah. now unpack I'm, that. I'm, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Don't do it yet. Okay. <laughs> hold it because I, I, I want to kind of, that's how I want to turn to. Okay. Okay. That's the, that's the kind of half, second half. Okay. okay. So let, okay. Me, let me get you there because I'm going there. All right. Good. Um, but Good. I, think, I think you're dead on. I mean, I think that, that's, that is that. So hold it. Don't lose it. Um, but that, that's where I'm going. Um, so, so what Hal Scruton start, sort of sets up his, his talk in, in the video uh, or the, the, the documentary is, he goes, ask any educated person any time between 1750 and 1930 to describe the aim of poetry, um, literature, music. And he said, typically the reply would be beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and what is the point of that aim? Beauty is a value. It's as important as truth and goodness. It was right. a transcendental. Um, for those who don't know philosophical traditions, um, it's talking about those aspects at which eternity um, permeates mm -hmm. um, creation. Right. Um, theologians picked up on it very early and they used all of this language. Why? Not because they were adopting a foreign uh, philosophy, but because these philosophical things were, were part of the created order that they saw as continuous with what Christianity was trying to say about the glory of God, mm -hmm. the truthfulness of God, and in, in the, in the holiness of God. Mm -hmm. So truth, beauty, and goodness are not foreign terms brought into theology, they encapsulate the, the, the full right. picture of, of We can't talk theologically without them. Without them. Right. And then he says, contrast that with 1919, uh, Marcel Duchamp, <laughs> mm. um, 20th century. Um, beauty, he said, stop being the import, important to art, the functional, the utilitarian. Mm. Mm. It aimed often to disturb, break down moral um, taboos. Um, but beauty wasn't the issue um, originally, um, and that, that was a kind of the big contrast. And he, mm. he goes into, um, he says, art now is the cult of ugliness. All right. That's yep. his term. And shock. That's right. Mm -hmm. Shock and ugliness. Architecture, too. Soulless and sterile. Think about it this architectural school. Brutalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why yeah. would you call something brutalism? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's, he's like, it's not just our physical surroundings that have become ugly, our language, our manners, our attitudes, our music. And of course, the video kind of mm -hmm. shows examples of each of these. Mm -hmm. um, increasingly, you know, rock is self-centered, offensive, um, it, it is what has replaced beauty, as if good uh, taste has no real taste, you know, or value in our lives. And he, he puts it this way, the big ugly word written on all of these ugly works is me. Mm. Self-centered indulgence, my desires, my pleasures, my importance, me, me, me. <laughs> and so what he's saying is sort of two things really, well, he'll, well, he'll get to this a little bit later, two, uh, two things um, um, take over. But the first step is this cult of ugliness, very tied to the same thing we talk, we've talked about, we'll talk about. Um, the the uh, individual, uh, mm -hmm. self-centered 
preoccupation of modern humanity. But I think it's bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Because I, I've struggled with a definition that I can use for art. Yeah. And what I've come up with is art is a form of non-discursive communication. In other words, it's a way of communicating without explaining it, without mm -hmm. you know, being explicit. Mm. So if what I write is not art, what I write is discursive. I'm, I'm doing a discourse gotcha. where I'm laying something well, interestingly, out. Well, okay, hold on, for yeah. my purposes. Yeah. Okay. Poetry is, yeah. because poetry always points to something beyond itself and it never lays everything out right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Visual arts are yeah. non-discursive, all of those kinds yeah. of things. So, the question that actually comes up to me then is if, assuming that that's at least a partial definition of arts, mm -hmm. what are they communicating? Yeah. What is the message that, th that they're coming across with? And I would argue that it isn't just purely individualism, brutalism, or you know, ugliness for ugliness's sake. Mm -hmm. I think they're making a statement about the universe that says that yes. there are no transcendents. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, that, that the, the good, the true, and the beautiful don't exist. There is no meaning. Everything yeah. is what you make it. Well, and it's interesting because what uh, Scruton says is, yeah, he, he critiques Deschamps for saying that basically it is only um, an idea statement. He, uh, that he, that sort of, that's what Deschamps wanted to basically say is that, um, that art becomes an idea statement. Mm -hmm. um, of what the, the particular person doing the art wants to say. And, and, and um, Scruton will say, I disagree with that, because uh, um, Duchamp thought he was going to do away with art like um, secularism did away with religion. And um, Scruton will say in reply, he says, you didn't do a day, uh, away with art, you did away with creativity mm -hmm. as a part of art. And so what you've got the ideal, but you don't have the actual carving out of the ideal. You just have the statement of the ideal. You, you have uh, content without form. Yeah. And so what you do is you, can, you call that table, a ta that table art by taking a, a picture of it. But it's not art just because you say it's art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do the, uh, the cider donut sundae. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I'm going crazy, I'm going crazy. What's it? A couple flavors of ice cream that go with it. So vanilla, salted caramel, chocolate mousse, chocolate chip. Salted caramel. That's my favorite. One. Yeah. It's beautiful. We're talking about <laughs> beauty here. Grab anybody else? I'll give one last cone here. You got it. I'm good, thank you. Great, thanks. <laughs> uh, Later on, I'm going to have dinner with my pastoral intern, so I'm going to actually have meat there. So I'm going to do reverse <laughs> dessert and. and yep. There I was is. trying to talk Lynn into coming tonight, but. <laughs> And I don't remember what I was talking about, but that's... Oh, you were talking about <laughs> beauty, form, content, that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, related to this, you know, we, you know, one of the things that I think that we see in the garden is the, the, uh, the sort of the unity of form and beauty. Yeah. You know, when we think about the, you know, trees bearing fruit, pleasing to the eye and good for food. We've, we've Pleasing had to the eye comes first. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, that's right. That's right, because that, that's the thing that draws you to the food. Well, and I think one of the things Scruton is doing is he wants to show a, a, a sort of a continuity between modern art and consumerism and our appetites. Those, those three things start to dominate in a way he understands things. And so this self-centered, indulgent, my desires, my pleasures, is matched by art being confirmatory of that. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. rapper is singing about, you know, a, B, mm -hmm. and C, mm -hmm. these right. things that confirm my partying, my sexual right. indulgence, my right. you know, pursuit of my own aims, goods, power, whatever it is. So art is always uh, referring to something. It's That's not right. referring to something transcendent, it's referring to something imminent or something emotive. or. And so whatever. the self, ex maybe this, this kind of attends to Glenn's point, the self-expressive in modern art is self-centered, not love or gift-giving. So the self-expressive could be those things, but it ends up becoming much more, much more driven right. by. But isn't that interesting? That but, but that that's ugly. Yes. Well, that's well, that's. And he, uh. he's going to get to why it's ugly. It's per, and he draws off of a very rich biblical theological tradition for it. So he goes, we're losing beauty, and the danger of that is that with this loss, we will lose the meaning of life. Mm. And. Um, 
So, you know, and he kind of talks about beauty is central to our civilization for over 2,000 years, ancient Greece, the place of beauty and art, poetry, architect, and everyday life. Through the pursuit of, pursuit of beauty, we shape the world that we have into a home. Mm-hmm. Or in the biblical language, into a temple, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is creation? Yeah. But yeah. the God forming the, 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 the raw material into a, yeah. a temple, a home. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So these things are very con- continuous. Um, we also come to understand our own nature as spiritual beings when we understand, um, you know, sort of beauty. So our world has turned its back on beauty, surrounded now with the ugliness and alienation that, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. modern art has given us. That's his argument. So beauty matters. It's not just a subjective thing, but a universal need of human beings. And you could say it in, terms, in Christian terms, in the image of God, um, our needs are such that beauty itself or God is, is that which uh, we ultimately um, find our thank you, right, right. Um, completion in. And so he, if we're going to ignore the need to find ourselves in a, you know, he puts it this way. If we ignore this need, we will find ourselves in a spiritual desert. And so we need to find a path out of the desert into beauty, into our home. And so it's a very much a spiritual quest. He understands right. the pursuit of beauty. It's not a, it's not a, 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 you know, it's not naturalistically conceived. It's not nat, nat you know, a, a form of nature. Well, you know, when I think about the egocentrism that that seems to be about, you know, the expressive mm-hmm. approach to art and sort of yeah. like. It's expressing my inner state or whatever. It's not sort of uh, conforming or expressing or reflecting some higher thing. You know, um, the problem, I think, with beauty or with uh, truth or goodness is is that it requires humility, for one thing, because you're, you're essentially saying, okay, you can judge my work. Now, you can't really judge uh, expressiveness. You know, how am I supposed to know whether or not this piece of whatever it is, this urinal that you've hung on the wall? Well, that's, yeah, we're going to get to Deschamps. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. How, how am I supposed to know whether or not this really is reflecting your yeah. inner state? Well, there's no way to know. But yeah. well, if we're talking about transcendent values, yeah. then we can judge. Well, and we can it. say, there you go, you know, you, you failed. <laughs> he, he's going to get onto that measure, and he, he's going to ground it both anthropologically and eventually, eventually spiritually. Um, and one of the things he talks about is, he says, you know, great artists of the past were aware that human life is filled with chaos and suffering. So this is, you know, the modern thinks that all of a sudden it's realism, if you will, like what like Glenn talked about last week, this kind of naked realism has a better access to suffering and pain in the world. Um, he's like, they were fully aware of that. They, they placed that. Um, oh, there it is. is. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm good. Behold. Behold. <laughs> That's right, behold. You guys want to have some? Well, I'm good. It looks great. <laughs> I am about to enjoy ice cream and donuts. Go <laughs> ahead, go. Tom. Talk away. So anyway, uh, contrast to ice cream and donuts, suffering and pain, right? This is beautiful. <laughs> that is. That is. But what the, the classical artist did is place that in, in, in the relief of a, 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 a transcendent order of meaning, purpose, and it, it allowed that suffering to not be mere suffering as an end in itself, but actually something that was still part of a transcendent whole in which the beautiful was the end result. Um, so all suffering that end everything else still meant that the creation and the creature was worthwhile, was of worth, of value, meaning. It wasn't absurd, you know, it's the shock art and the, and the kind of urinal hanging right. on the... Um, well, think about, remember uh, Herostratus yeah. in the Temple of Artemis, yeah. you know, burning it down? You know, what was the point? Essentially, he wanted to be famous. It was all about him. So if he couldn't, be, if he couldn't uh, achieve his yeah. personal goal yeah. uh, through actually you know, demonstrating talent yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and expressing uh, beauty uh, and getting praise, he was going to be famous for burning down the, the temple of, uh, uh, of Artemis. And it seems to me that that's yeah. so much of what this, this egoism is about. Very much. That's going to become, you're going to see, that is sort of the disposition, what he would call the modern, the, the kind of modern in relationship to art is the kind of burning down of the good, 
beautiful and the truth. Uh, and so one of the things that's interesting is that he talks about the way classical art tries to show even sorrow and everything else um, within the context of the beautiful, um, is that beauty kind of illumines that, not to make the suffering and the evil good, but to show that they are not, they're not, they don't transcend the good, the good aims. They're not the and, final and story. That's right, they're not the final. It's like yeah. resurrection with the cross. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If you can use an analogy. Oh, I think that's exactly and, right. And so what you have here, he talks about, and you know, I kind of kind of honed in on this, is that in the beautiful, what you're shown is, is that being, that human being, even in suffering, even in struggle, is a good. It's worthwhile. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's that's creation. Right. Even if your entire life is suffering, it's still worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And so he says, modern art goes the other direction. It grows weary of the sacred understanding and task. Hmm. And the randomness, the meaninglessness of modern life um, could not, could, is such that um, art could not be redeeming. Instead, it has to just merely depict the random, the ugly, the sin-infected. That's what has to be displayed. You know what this gets me thinking about? It's just how moronic your typical scientist sort of, scientism sort of advocate is. Yeah. This is completely off the radar for these people. But it, that's what exactly makes them so ugly. Yeah, definitely. Well, let, let's add one more thing. We're back to Nisbet. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure what order these things are going to come out, but yeah. the sociologist Nisbet talked about how the modern world has, you know, in the name of the the uh, state, has eliminated all connections to everything. All you're left with is a group of autonomous individuals under the state. Right. So what the artists are doing is they're being the autonomous individual. Yes. And you know, with without any connection to anything larger than themselves. That's right. That's right. And that's what, he's going to move into that being very ugly. And then he moves to you know, Duchamp as sort of the, the kind of uh, the, the, the central figure that uh, kind of, was a, kind of uh, represents this whole trend. Right. And he said the urinal, like you mentioned before, he basically had a urinal in which he had a pseudonym which he signed and it was 1917 and he exhibited it. And it was meant to be satirical, and it was meant to mock the kind of art, art you know, the elitism of the art world. Um, that, that is what it was after. But it ended up producing something very different. And I think in a weird way, he, he found that more fascinating than his original point. Uh. And so although he would like to say, I'm doing the kind of Overton when I'm pushing the thing to kind of to move it into a new direction, that kind of helped him on one end. But on the other end, he kind of was fascinated by this whole notion that you had a bunch of, uh, you know, epigones coming along and producing stuff. Right. And they had a very different, um, they no longer saw art as having a certain s sacred status. Um, and, and it's interesting because Duchamp in one of the interviews will say, I was not trying, um, I don't care about art. I want to get rid of the term. I want to do what basically modernity did to religion. And that's interesting because in a weird way, in, in his attempt, he ends up undermining art altogether. And he ends up in a weird way relativizing it and getting rid of it. What is it with these people in the void? Why do they yeah. want to just... Well, because that, once you get rid of the transcendentals, there's nothing left. Right. There's yeah. nothing else. And this is what Scruton's point. No longer does art have a sacred status. No longer does art aim to raise us to a higher moral and spiritual plane. It is just one human gesture among others. No more meaningful than a laugh or a shout. You know? And even maybe a laugh or a shout has more meaning because at least it has context and meaning. Um, but he calls it this, the cult of the beautiful was replaced by the cult of the ugly. Yeah. And he goes, since the world is disturbing, art should be disturbing too for the modern. You know, uh, those who look for beauty in art are out of touch with reality. Well, isn't that interesting how art, again, is in some sense reflective. Reflect. So the modern view is that we live in a, co a sort of a meaningless cosmos of matter in motion, violence, mm -hmm. etc., with no point. So art must reflect that. Yeah. And so what he ends up saying is that what art becomes merely is idea without creativity. And what he means by that is just merely if you have a, an idea, a table is art, you take a picture of it, 
that idea is enough to be art, rather than you having to construct a table, than you having to actually give form to that content. And so it is content without form in, a, right. in an interesting way, um, and without ha needing the skill and craft and hierarchy that is necessary for right. there to be actual art. Right. And so what it is, it's, it is an elimination of art, like we eliminate everything. It's like the, tr you know, the, the kind of the trophy for everyone, right? You, you, if everyone gets the trophy at the end, then the skills required to actually achieve mathematical genius, right. um, linguistic genius, uh, right. intellectual um, pursuits is, is gone, well then you've basically gutted everything because anything can therefore be considered that which is a worthy object of a trophy Therefore, why pursue anything? So his whole point is the pursuit of beauty has been ripped out, and so it has been replaced by this kind of trophyism. Mm -hmm. um, you can be an artist if you just have a clever way of looking at a perspective. Right. You know. Um, you know what? What I'm kind of struck by listening to this. <clears throat> My um, great uncle George, <laughs> uh, George Capobianca. He was my godfather. I'm the only one in my family with an Italian godfather. <laughs> um, Uncle George grew up in Florence, and he trained as an artist in Florence. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And he made his living in the United States working for a paint company, hmm. and basically what he did is blended colors. So yeah. when you wanted X color, you know, whatever the number was, or what, however they had it ca categorized, mm -hmm. he was the one who produced it, and he did it by eye. Huh. Okay, so he he was trying to he tried to teach all of us to draw. Okay. Mean, and what he told you to, what he told me to do, I remember, is he said, just take your left hand and drop it on the table <laughs> and draw your left hand. Interesting. He says, because if you can draw hands, he says you can draw anything. Oh, that's very true. Oh, yeah, so true. draw practice drawing the hand. Uh. He had absolutely nothing good to say about any modern art. I believe it. I mentioned Picasso yeah. to him once. <laughs> oh man! Uh, um, he well, any artist who could who could blend <laughs> color by eye—that's like yeah. being a, able to, to yeah. like when you talk about like perfect pitch. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, it's, right. it's just having that kind of. He, he, and he was absolutely right about the hand. The yeah. hand is the most. I'm an artist. I, yeah. I, I'm a you know I I draw things. You know I I, mm -hmm. I, I illustrate things. The most difficult part of the human body is the hand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so art tends to be on the imminent level, um, purely. It's not the transcendent ideal world, not the better place, but the here and now um, in the modern depiction of it. Uh, and it's the world as given. Art of today is ugly, as Scruton will say, and, and merely because it just wants to depict the world as it is, sin, death. They don't want to put it, illuminate it in light of a higher um, right. reality. Yeah, mm -hmm. when you reject the transcendentals, what's left? The void. That's right, that's right, absolutely. Yeah. And so he goes, we're wallowing in ugliness. That's <laughs> his way of putting right, it. Right. Um, and and he, then he kind of couples it with art needs creativity, not merely ideas. And creativity is about sharing. It's a call to others, community, right? We talked about a little bit uh, in other episodes to see the world as the artist sees it. Then he looks at children's art, interestingly. He goes, these are not merely ideas in the place of creature, creative images, nor are they a wallowing in ugliness. He goes, they are aiming to paint the world as they see it, and, and they, they kind, of, kind of represent it. He goes, it's pure delight in what they're seeing. Um, yeah, there you yeah, go. Here we go. Yeah, we yeah, have we're some here. We wish we could. <laughs> yeah, just so f folks know, flatbread pizza, the, the, <laughs> right. the, the menus have uh, the you know uh, art from local schools, which is more schools. profound than, <laughs> right. than modern art actually, right, right, right. because it's pure delight in creation and wonder. Um, the skill of the artist shows that the real in the light of the ideal, um, and so I think this is what we talked about in other episodes with like um, Tolkien and everything else, is the ideal and the real are connected, um, the transcendent and the imminent, right? And, and, so, um, and so art, in its full sense, should be depicting that. I mean, in, in the scrutiny, look at um, the famous work of, uh, it's Michelangelo's David, right? His, okay, right, uh, sure. That's one episode of He's it. He's talking about the, the sculpture. Sculpture, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
And so one of the things he talks about is uh, today it's dangerous to talk about the transcendence of art and it pointing beyond um, the mere creaturely to a higher order of objective you know, objective realities. Well, yeah, and Stephen value. King just got in trouble for that. He did, and he's what he says is dangerous. Because people feel threatened to judge others. You know, their tastes. They're offended that there is a measure, a real measure yeah. of good and bad. Because yeah. of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. Whenever somebody says that, I just feel like saying, "Okay, let me put your eye in some something really ugly." And so, well, I actually go the opposite direction. I know people who can look at a spectacular sunset and say, "Yeah, okay." I don't know anybody who looks at it and says, yuck. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Although I do prefer rainy days. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> That's my Finnish side there. Um, but, but no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and one of the things that, you know, it's it, kind of an interesting take here. It's kind of, I, I'm always self-critical of the worlds that I'm from within. Is, I mean, I know there is maybe an unfair way of, uh, of, of you know, the kind of, the Puritan here who would say, um, and I mean Puritan, not in the real sense, but in the in the uh, stereotypical the derogatory sense. sense yeah. um, that they would say, well, here we go. You know, this is you know this is kind of just an oddity. Um, but Puritans were very attuned to beauty. I think I'll, I'll argue later. Jonathan Edwards. There probably was no finer oh, sure. philosophical right. and theological right. thinker in in from that leads to the contemporary world and from the reformed world than Jonathan Edwards. And I think we, we, we need to heed a lot of what he has to say. He's actually a good set of resources to kind of start reading. Well, he was all about beauty. He was all. He's actually, yeah, it's, you yeah. know, it's like McDermott will argue is that uh, it wasn't the wrath of God, it was the beauty of God. Yeah, actually, yeah. the wrath is the flip side of the actual beauty. Right. Um, the beauty permeated everything, the glory of God and the beauty of God. And, and, and McDermott will argue it's more profound in Edwards than in Augustine or Hans von Balthasar. Who yeah, I've got McDermott. Uh, made, yeah. yeah, I think he's, he's on to something very, very uh, interesting there. We'll, we'll kind of get to that. Um, but it's this notion that, but here we have Scruton saying beauty and its transcendence is offensive to the modern world. Now, how, how do these kind of, you know, the flat earth kind of Puritans, how do they deal with that? Yeah. Because, you know, isn't, isn't you know, here are people who are rejecting the very thing, the transcendent God and the God's transcendent attributes, the gospel of God and God's transcendent attributes in relation to beauty, that beautiful art too is offensive. Yeah, you're, <coughs> I, immediately, <laughs> I immediately start thinking of the Jacobins. Yeah. yeah. Because that, that's the world yeah. we're in. We're, yeah. we're, we're really dealing with a revolt against everything. Hierarchy, yeah. Against hierarchy, against the true, the good, the beautiful, against yeah. And that all comes together. I mean, it's it, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's you yeah. can't talk about truth and goodness and beauty without hierarchy. Right. That's right. And and, and the way um, Scruton puts it is, people have lost their faith in beauty because they have lost their faith in ideals. And of course, mm -hmm. that and they've lost their faith in ideals because they lost their faith in and and the historic Christian God and historic conceptions of God. And so um, we're back to one of our first episodes on transcendence. That's right. right well, right. it's interesting. He goes, now in art, all there is is appetites. So there's no values other than utilitarian ones, something that has a value only if it's of use. So art is only good if it's, it's of use. Mm -hmm. And then he asks, he goes, what, you know. We're all set. I think we're good. Does yep. everyone want to uh, do supper today? That'd be great. Yep. Yeah. One last question. Uh, was it winter IPA and two cone heads and then three cone heads? Yeah, I had one one cone head and one winter IPA and then the uh, the donuts and ice cream. Right. You got it. And two two roads. Definitely. I guess that makes it four roads. <laughs> <laughs> And so what uh, Scruton's getting to is all there is, is in modern art is the world of appetites. There's no values other than utilitarian ones, and something only has value if it's of use. And then he asks the question, what use is beauty? Yeah, yeah. And, and then he quotes, um, uh, you know, what is, what is the character, Oscar Wilde of all things, uh, the, all art is absolutely useless. But it's... Wild's point was well, yeah, and actually, Wild would say that yeah. it's not art unless it's useless. That's right. He goes, beauty has a value higher than usefulness. I mean, right. usefulness, and so people right. need useless things. By the way, I, I believe that Wild died a Christian. Did, did Catholic you, Christian? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He converted. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and it was. I think it was these transcendentals that mm. really drove him to 
to then kind of connect it with the gospel and, and the fullness. And mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and this was his, you know, a Scruton took from that. Beauty has a value higher than usefulness. People need useless things even more than they need things with a use. And he goes, what is of use, what use is love, worship? None whatsoever, he means in a, in a practical Well, I understand. In fact, yeah. when, I, when I spoke to the, the board at New St. Andrews College here uh, a little while back, I said, worship is the, is the supreme liberal art. That's right. In other words, yeah. it has no utility yeah. in sort of a, a work sense. In fact, when you think about the Sabbath, what yeah. is the Sabbath? Yeah. Stop working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there is this profound thing. And, and this is where, interestingly, <coughs> I think biblical Christianity fully complements the transcendental philosophers, is that they both understood that there is this transcendent realm at which it isn't about pragmat pragmatism. It's the, 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 the most, the best way to complete everything about human flourishing and um, human action and doing is found in this spiritual, contemplative, moral realm in which one is transformed to be the kind of person and character that carries those things out as byproducts of encounter with that which is true, beautiful, and good, God mm -hmm. himself. Right. And I think that's, that's really what, what is worship other than orienting one's whole being towards God and receiving one's whole creatureliness from God. I mean, that's what it is. Worship isn't for God. Yeah, it's God, not like God gets something out of it. He's not getting out of it. He's right. full and complete. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so, I can't wait till they worship me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sitting around, hanging out. Thank you. Right, thank you. Thank you. Um, sitting around, hanging out, you know, kind of lost until that happens. So. That's right. When will they pay attention to me down there? <laughs> that's right. And so, you know, that's the thing. And he goes, um, so beauty is, uh, is no better than a side effect for the moderns. Um, and since art is useless and it doesn't matter, you know, what you read, look at, and listen to for the modern. Um, we are besieged, he said, with a message on every side that we are merely to be tempted by appetite, never addressed by beauty, but always by the base. And he's, right. he's saying that sort of advertising becomes the real representation of modern art more than art itself. And art competes with advertising. Well, that's interesting because Vermont doesn't allow, or it's, it's illegal to have billboards in Vermont. And it's interesting, coupled with that, what Glenn was saying is that the, the contemporary kind of seeker church models itself on the advertising. That's exactly right. So we're going to package this. This And so consume, the consumer model, as Scruton will say, is one that completely appeals to the appetite. So could we say, I mean, is it, is it going too far to say that sort of the seeker-sensitive model is anti-Christian or not Christian at a, at a pretty I fundamental would, level? I would argue without wanting to demean those that I think mean well with it, that yes, it is. Well, you because, know what they well, say about meaning well, it's the road to hell. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think it well, is. Let, let me ask a question. If your worship service is seeker-sensitive, what are you worshiping? That's right, you're worshiping the people who don't belong to your church. And you are orienting it towards the, the unredeemed appetites. That's exactly right. And that right. is not even what Plato was up to, much <laughs> less Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Um, let, let me go back to the Reformed thing again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, okay. yeah, let's, go, let's, go, let's go there. Let's go there. Yeah, because we can go there now. <laughs> the, I, what I was responding to at that point, or when I brought it up, was the utilitarian side of yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Zwingli was, all right, there, there's a lot of history here, a lot of cultural context and all that, but the bottom line is that one of the differences between the Zwinglian reform and the Lutheran reform is that Luther was operating over a larger territory, the territory of Saxony. Zwingli was in essentially a city-state. Okay. And in urban culture in this period, there was a huge demand for more of a logocentric, word-centered religion so Zwingli strips down the liturgy and simplifies all kinds of things because he wanted the center of the service to be on the preached word. I think that's also part of, one of the reason for his lower view of communion. Mm -hmm. He wanted it centered on the word. But in the process of doing this, he also didn't want anything to distract from the preached word. And so he had the stained glass windows removed, the statues removed, the walls whitewashed, and so on, to create this stripped down, bare, utilitarian yeah. aesthetic that, in its own way, it has a beauty about it. 
I mean, I if it's done yeah. well, right, right, it right. has its own beauty. Yeah. So uh, I go to a church that, yeah, we're in the new building. It was built in 1761. Yeah. And it's whitewashed walls, plain glass, all of that kind of thing. But there is something that is aesthetically satisfying about yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. So you can yeah. get there. Yeah. But this notion of we need to center everything on the word and eliminate anything else and see, leads you to utilitarianism. And this would be the critique, this is McDermott's point, is this would be the critique of, he, he would say that in, even in Calvin and uh, Edwards and their, their, their finer theological you know, uh, expositions, would go against that grain. And he, he looks at Luther and Bard in particular as people who actually follow that Zwinglian, if you will. Um, well, Luther not following Zwingli, but very shared, in the sense that there is this huge suspicion about the creation and the manifestation in creation. I mean, he, McDermott will talk about... Thank you. He looks at uh, Luther's commentary on, on the, you know, the, the sort of Romans and then uh, in the Psalms where it talks about creation, you know, yeah. manifesting the glory of Israel. And he, he watches the, the twisted exegesis going on. And he says, while I completely agree with Luther in the restoration of, of pure grace in, redemp you know, in redemption, um, what they really messed up on was the place of creation in that. Well, this, right, this, because Luther this, believed everything in Scripture had to talk about salvation in Christ by grace through faith. That's right. But, but you know, so, you, you noticed something, though, that intrigued me. You know, you, you, and I, had, I didn't know this. Uh, Zwingli was operating from the framework of a city-state. So what hmm. is it about a city-state that would be logocentric as opposed to sort of creational? Well... Uh, the answer is simply a very high literacy rate. Well, relatively high literacy rate. Um, not very high by modern standards, but by standards of the day, very high. Right. Um, and as a result, you know, pr the printing press had just been invented 50 or 60 years before. Right. There's a growing demand for written sources. Right. There's a growing interest in scripture and in the word and in the preached word and so oh, on. And I can understand and, and that. All of, all of, because they're coming out of a context in medieval Europe where what you have is liturgical drama in a language you don't understand. Got you. Got you. It's all smells and bells and visuals. Right. And, well, the fact is, do you know the reason why they ring bells during the Catholic Church service at key points? It's because nobody understood what was going on. <laughs> Nobody understood the Latin. They were frequently conducting business during the church service. So they rang the bells. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. They, they, they rang the bells to alert people to when the miracle of transubstantiation was going to occur got, got, so that they knew when to shut up and watch. <laughs> okay, when you're coming out of that kind of a context right. and you're suddenly getting worship in your language right. where there's preaching and there's content and there's scripture, this is exciting for people sure. who are in this kind of newly literate society. Well, the thing that occurred to me, though, that doesn't really tie into that, so maybe my, my initial thought was just un, it didn't have any real justification was what Tom was talking about, a city-state, of course, we're talking about an urban environment that has some distance from, you know, the rhythms of nature and, and farming and, and those kinds of things. So when, you're, when your life is ordered by the seasons, by the, by the, the sun, that kind of thing, you, you tend to be more oriented toward the meaning that you sort of draw out of the natural environment you're in. Yeah, and that would make sense, except the city-states in this period were much more closely connected yeah. to nature than modern cities yeah, are. Yeah, I think you're... I, I can see that. I mean, there are farmers that live in town. Sure, I gotcha, example. gotcha. Well, I mean, I think a lot of times that, you know, I mean, what happens in the Reformed world in particular, and you don't, you've never seen, like, other than Edwards, any, any kind of really elaborate... Um, you know, philosophizing and much less theologizing on the issue of beauty until kind of contemporary issues have brought it up. Right. It, it's not that it, it wouldn't have been appreciated. I mean, Edwards is a case in point. Um, he, I mean, here's Kelvin. I mean, this is a quote from the Institutes. Since the perfection of blessedness consists in the knowledge of God, 
He has been pleased in order that none might be excluded from the means of attaining felicity to manifest his perfections in the whole structure of the universe and daily place himself in our view that we cannot open our eyes without being compelled to behold him. Mm. His essence indeed is incomprehensible, utterly transcending all human thought, but on each of his works, his glory is engraven in characters so bright, so distinct, and so illustrious that none, however dull and illiterate, can plead ignorance of their excuse. Mm. Wherever um, you turn your eyes, there is no portion of the world, however minute, that does not exhibit at least some spark of beauty. I mean, that's what, the, that's what Scruton is saying. There is no ugliness that does not still have its light, uh, have the light of beauty shed on it. And that's the point of art, that the beauty and ugliness aren't contrasted like the modern world, but are such that beauty transcends it and, and illumines it. Um, and redeems so, it. That's right, and redeems it. While it is impossible to contemplate the vast and beautiful fabric as it extends around, um, without being overwhelmed by the immense weight of glory, the elegant structure of the world serves as a kind of mirror in which we may behold God through other, who is otherwise invisible. He actually describes the universe as the theater of God's the theater glory. theater of God's glory. And here, here, here's a great quote from Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and of all beauty, from whom all is perfectly derived and on whom all is most absolutely and perfectly dependent, of whom and through whom and to whom is all being and all perfection, and whose being and beauty is at it were, as it were, the sum of and comprehension of all existence and excellence much more than the sun is the fountain and summer and comprehension of all the light and brightness of the day. So these were not theologians who were working with the modern frame, but would have been continuous with what I think I argue, will argue Scruton is up to and uh, the classical Christian tradition is up to. Now, it may not have been fleshed out well in, in, in Protestant theology yet, but I think we have a lot of work to do there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. This, this whole sort of, I, you know, the language that uh, you, uh, you know, from the quotation from uh, from Edwards is marvelous. Yeah. Ex, you, know, you know, the sun is <laughs> used by so many yeah. thinkers as yeah. illustrating, you know, intelligibility and knowledge, but also beauty and and just joy. Um, but then, you know, he makes the point of saying that, you know, when we're talking about divine things, we're going way beyond what even the sun can express. You that's know, right. this is something uh, more comprehensive, more... That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's sad to see people like, uh, is it Scott Oliphant, and figures like this, they're so steeped in, in their theological limits that they only see everything from a very perverse reading of Aquinas, which is not what Aquinas was, but the sort of nature-grace dichotomy mm -hmm. in which, you know, the trans, you know, this kind of Christian, Christian view that draws off of this imagery of transcendence somehow is about taking a pure nature and adding to it subs grace as a substance. Well, here, here's a thought that yeah. just occurred to me the other day, yeah. maybe a day or two ago. You know, people whose theology is built upon a misreading of someone else yep. are not interested in hearing anything That's that right. will call into question whether or not they understood the someone else. That's right. <laughs> That's know? right. Yeah, yeah. So if you misread Aquinas, yeah. you don't want to know that you misread Aquinas. That's if you've right. built an entire theology on a misreading of Aquinas. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and I think that's, I think that, that goes as, a, as you know, a strong. We, we have to cut through a lot of polemic in the Christian world because there is so much, you know, infighting and doctrinal kind of positioning. There, there's another thing that's at work here too, though, that we need to think about. <clears throat> this may not be the right spot to do this, <laughs> but there's the argument that we've got poor people to feed. We've got yeah. the gospel to spread. We've got all of these things. Why should we divert much-needed resources to doing something like building an aesthetically beautiful church? Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, <laughs> I, mean, I think it, I think it is because it has the fountain center of 
what it means to be a human being yeah. And, yeah. and what salvation gives us in Christ. Um, yeah. By the way, I'm thinking of Notre Dame Cathedral here, yeah. which we did a show on yeah. right. several months ago. And, but, uh, you know, it's something Scruton deals with. For those who haven't watched that, you know, Why Does Beauty Matter? I think, you know, even especially in the Reform world, re listen to it. You know, at least answer it, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things he gets at is he, he really looks at architecture in particular, and he says that, you know, if you want to see where, he, he calls, if you want to see where real vandalism happens, it's architecture. Mm. He says, it's not the people painting graffiti on this stuff. He goes, actually, they're just finishing the job. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, he, he said, they, 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 you know, and right. he'll, he'll use very strong language. I won't say right. it here right, right, <laughs> for right. the integrity of our audience, right. but I'll use manner in, in the Scrutonian sense. Um, but, but, uh, but this is a, that that is a place at which you see, you know, modern architecture has fully embraced the utilitarian. What he says is, this is a brilliant quote because he's paralleling something Scripture says. He says, "If you pursue utility for its own sake, you end up with something that is only limited and is going to be eradicated within a generation." In other words, he put, he he films all these different modernist buildings built on utilitarian but not aesthetic principles, not for their beauty and continuity and their, and their relationship to long term, but merely for the immediate expediency. He says, look at them. They're the most outdated, outmoded. He goes, they're not, they're all abandoned. Why? Not only because people don't want to be in them, but they don't want to be in them because they're ugly. That's right. Um, you know, this reminds me of something that's sort of fascinating. In our area, yeah. there's, a, there's a town called Rockville. Yeah. Rockville is known for its blue collar sort of, yeah. its, its sort of uh, ethos. And on the town green, every year, there's a creche, yeah. a beautiful, very large creche. Now, I know many of our reformed folks will be appalled that I'm talking about a creche, but here we have, you know, Joseph and Mary and the, and, you know, the animals and stuff like that. Now, the Connecticut Valley Association of Atheists have just, are just appalled that, you know, this blue-collar town called Rockville, you know, it has the temerity to, to actually put a crush on the town green. So they sued the town of Rockville to have the right to put up their display. <laughs> so their display consists of just this sort of ugly, white... A cult of ugly. ...sort of <laughs> thing. It's just a thing made of plywood that says Connecticut Valley Atheists. That's it. And so it's sort of like this smear across a blue, beautiful object. Now, now, what's interesting to me in another respect is that the town of Tolland, which is right next door to Rockville, which is a kind of Tony community. So I know both communities pretty well because I live in Tolland and I own property in Rockville. And they've got a very, they're very, but Tolland would never think about putting a crush on the town mm. green. Never think about that. And so, because they don't, they don't get this ugly thing right, from the yeah. Connecticut Valley Atheists. Well, this thing Scruton says is so what you end up having, you have ugliness all around you, but you have, in the name of utility, you have the most transitory architecture, art, and everything else. So he says what is trendy today is immediately regarded within a step or two in history as redundant and outmoded, and mm -hmm. therefore it's to be done away. He said, whereas... The, the architecture and the creativity of transcendental art mm -hmm. that anchored in the truth, beauty, and goodness of God and all things in relation to God, that has a permanence because it creates a home, a form in which everyone can inhabit and, 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 and locate, identify, orient. It you know, mimics the created order, if you will, and allows people to flourish. And therefore, it becomes long-term that which these transitory things can never accomplish. So they become outmoded. You have need a new and a new. And you look at it. I mean, you see it in ideology. I mean, what's today's radical liberalism is tomorrow's fundamental conservatism. You know, what is today's feminism is now sort of the patriarchy. What is today, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's this constant kind of... It, it, it's like we said before, there's nothing less relevant than the church that's trying to be relevant. That's mm -hmm. right. And it's, yeah. the way he puts it, he goes, if you, you know, it's similar yeah. to you. If you seek your own self, you lose your life. But mm -hmm. if you seek eternity, you'll gain your life. Mm -hmm. And he says, if you seek utility, you'll be less, you, you know, utilitarian at all. You're useless. Yeah. But if you seek that which is not for utility, not utilitarian, God for God's own sake, 
mm -hmm. um, then all these things will be given. And so the well, or C.S. Lewis's comment yeah, about yeah. the people who do the most good in this world are those precisely whose eyes are fixed on heaven. Heaven. That's right. right. That's well, right. we've, we've, we've pretty much filled up our allotted time, and uh, this is great stuff. Yes, yeah. So uh, I don't know if I have anything to add. I mean, this is, uh, you know, so sort of resonant with me in terms of things that I care about and think about, you know, all the time. Thinking of church architecture in particular, I mean, I've been involved with different building campaigns, and the, and the argument that, I, that I've had with, with many of my laymen over the years has been, an argument for the added expense of doing it beautifully, as opposed to just sort of having some. What's what's uh, you know disappointing is that argument has to actually be conducted. Mm -hmm. you know, shouldn't it be obvious that what we make in the service of God should reflect God's beauty? Uh, it doesn't occur to many people. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's my my uh, passing thought. Any any things you want to end with, Glenn? I am really kind of intrigued by the fact that the culture has run so far away from beauty. They mm. seem to have embraced ugliness, and I do not see what the appeal is. Yeah, yeah. I'll well, just leave well, it there. Well, I think Scruton kind of says that, that the appeal is a kind of mockery. Yeah. A yeah. mockery of the givens, uh, the created order, and that's kind of, I guess, the impulse is driven by our fallenness, that, mm. that there is still, contra what a lot of Protestants think, there is still a witness in creation mm. that attests to the invisible attributes of God and that creation itself exhibits that. And so creation is not just this kind of, um, you know, um, the, 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 this kind of neutral realm in which, right, you know, right. something kind of shows up if, if only if, you know, you have this immediate divine act, but it, it, it exhibits the glory of God. And yeah. that's what causes all these reactions. And I think most Reformation people in particular would affirm that along with any other Christian. Yeah. Um, the, the problem kind of lies in, 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 you know, what we do with that. And uh, I think we'd like to press it, you know, more in the direction that um, there's more going on here, and you, we require more nuance when, when we articulate our theology um, of balancing creation, redemption, and, and the resurrection, um, that we, we can't get rid of figures like Scruton. We need to hear them, and they have a prophetic word for, for what we have to say today. We just need to balance it, you know, with our distinctives and, and, and not become knee-jerk. Right. Well, you know, the, 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 uh, the reference to mockery that you, yeah. that you just, uh, the, the Psalms comes to my mind, you know, yeah. the mockers. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, uh, thank you for listening to Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support. We appreciate the fact that you've taken you know, over an hour of your time to listen to us ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope that there's something that's been said that uh, is helpful to you and maybe even beautiful. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.